talking about a very interesting topic, a topic that you might find very curious to know that this is something that's very, a very hot topic in Judaism. It's about medical ethics. Medical ethics for everybody is a hot topic because there are a lot of issues that come up as we progress in the sciences that we need to know what is right and wrong. How do we deal with patients? How do we deal with our own problems? How do we deal with our elderly parents and our grandparents? And therefore, it's, it's imperative that we have an idea of what are the issues that we're dealing with. I wanted to bring on board somebody who's an expert in this field, somebody who really knows their stuff and has both a medical background as well as a rabbinical background. And we're very happy to have with us Dr. Ed Reichman, who is the assistant professor of uh, emergency medical, the, uh, the emergency room at the Montefiore Medical Center. He's also a teacher of medical ethics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and is the vice president of the Association of Jewish Orthodox Scientists, which we're going to find out more about very, very soon. So, Dr. Reichman, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Pleasure is mine, Rabbi Tolkien. Good. I look forward to the next half hour. I want to ask you, the Association for Jewish Orthodox Scientists, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I know you have your smicha, your rabbinical ordination from Yeshiva University, a very prestigious place to be learning for smicha, for the rabbinate. And also you've, of course, graduated in the medical area. You decided to go into medicine, bringing in your ethical background from the rabbinate to that. So it's a very fascinating combination. And being vice president of this association, I'm sure it gives you a lot of uh, opportunities to be able to teach medical ethics on many different fronts. Well, the, this association that you mentioned, the Association of Orthodox Jewish Scientists, is now uh, over 50 years old. Uh, and the prime focus of this organization really is to address this uh, interface between Jewish law and the modern world, in particular the areas of sciences, the natural sciences, the medical sciences. And for over 50 years, the organization has been... Uh, doing conferences, uh, putting out journals. Interesting. Uh, How many members are there in the association itself? Uh, probably about five, 600 members. Five, 600 members. And this is an international organization? International organization, correct. Excellent. We run conferences, actually, in, uh, in Europe, in Israel, uh, run annual conferences uh, primarily here in New York in the United States. Very good. On a personal level, I'm sure for you, balancing your medical career and your rabbinical career, your rabbinical background, must be a very interesting challenge sometimes, especially working in an emergency room. You're constantly faced with issues on an ongoing basis. Uh, that's true, and, and the truth is that's probably why I gravitated towards the field of emergency medicine, uh, because there's so many dilemmas in the daily practice of emergency medicine, uh, in particular issues related to the end of life, how to treat patients, whether to put them on life support systems, not to put them on life support systems. Right deal with the living wills. Uh, now, do you have a medical ethic board at the hospital that you have to report to, or you're basically in a position where you can apply your knowledge on a day-to-day -day basis to your work? Uh, that, that's a good question. In essence, every physician is really their own ethicist. Really? Uh, many decisions uh, sort of on the front lines, if you will, the decisions are made by each individual. Very complex cases that are beyond the scope of a particular physician would be taken to an ethics committee, which our hospital does have, uh, which I've been a member of. Uh, and those cases would be discussed by an interdisciplinary group of uh, physicians and ethicists right. and lawyers, a very, the very difficult case. Interesting. Now, for the sake of our audience, can you give us a little bit of background? How is it that Judaism, which most people think of as being a religion, which religion means a belief system and something to do with God and something to do with theology, how does it get down to the nitty-gritty of dealing with end-of-life issues, of medical ethics, of these types of things? What is it in the Torah that gives us the right to say that that the Torah that God is asking of us to apply the principles of Judaism to something like medical practice? Well, Jewish law, as you also well know, Rabbi Teldin, really addresses every aspect of human existence. 
uh, from the moment a person gets up in the day till the, uh, the time a person goes to sleep at night, uh, from the beginning of life till the end of life. Right. And the application of those basic Jewish principles to medicine uh, is absolutely no exception. Uh, so Jewish law addresses literally every aspect of the practice of medicine from uh, the beginning of life to the end of life, from assisted reproduction, uh, treating infertility, uh, to whether a person should undergo a complex uh, surgery which has a high risk of, uh, of fatality, of dying from the surgery, to whether someone should receive a transplant, to whether someone should uh, uh, should have uh, cloning uh, right, to, uh, to, to okay, reproduce so, a child. So but, you're, you're bringing up an interesting question. Now, let me ask you. Aronius is looking at this and saying, wait a second, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible about cloning. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible about assisted reproduction. It probably doesn't say in the prophets either. It doesn't say in the Talmud because they didn't know about these things. So how do we have, find the principles in these basic texts to be able to apply it and extract it to use it for the present-day situation? That's a great question. There, there are a number of overarching general principles. What are they? And the principles, for example, the most basic principle in the practice of medicine uh, is the interpretation of the biblical phrase "verapo yirape," which means "and uh, you shall surely heal." Okay. Uh, which has been interpreted by our rabbis to mean that a, a physician has the license to heal another human being, and that it doesn't necessarily run counter to God's will. Good. Uh, so the Not application. Only that, but I, I think it's very interesting as well that when the doctor tells the patient that you only have a certain amount of time left that that's the opposite of the doctor's role to a certain degree, at least according to some, some interpretations. In other words, the doctor's role is to heal. Going beyond that is already going into areas where the doctor doesn't necessarily have the right to push their opinions into. That's correct. That's correct. And actually, the, the topic that you mentioned is, is itself a very fascinating topic, and that's the divulging of information to patients mm -hmm. uh, in the society that we live in. And this, and this actually brings us to another major aspect of the practice of medicine, uh, which uh, needs to be uh, put in the context of Jewish medicine. Generally, the patient is the center of medical practice in the contemporary medicine. So you have an obligation as a physician to divulge all information to the patient. The patient has the final say. And to uh, make them as neurotic as possible. To make them as neurotic <laughs> as possible, to show them all the list of uh, complications <laughs> right. from Tylenol. Right, exactly. uh, you know, primarily, we and make physicians crazy, right? do it to, uh, to, to alleviate their own liability exactly. reasons. That, uh, but, and but how does a Jewish medical ethicist look at so, it? So the secular principle that underlies this is the notion of autonomy, which means autonomy literally means self-rule. It means the individual rules his or herself. Okay. So they have the decision to do everything at any time, all the time. Uh, they can which harm themselves. Which is based on individual rights. It's based on individual rights, and that, that manifests itself, for example, in the emergency department. If somebody comes into the hospital and I can administer a therapy which would be life-saving for that individual, and they refuse it, then I have no right to force them because really? they can make their own intelligent decisions, okay. assuming that's an adult individual and the individual has the capacity to make a decision. In Jewish law, on the other hand, it wouldn't necessarily be that case. Jewish law doesn't have this principle of autonomy in the same sense as the secular world does. And what that means is that according to Jewish law, our bodies are not our own to do as, as we so please at any time. Uh, indeed, according to Jewish law, our bodies are... Uh, we, we are simply a bailey, if you will, or uh, a, uh, a person who, uh, who watches over our own bodies, but our bodies don't belong to us. It's our loan we from are, God. Uh, right, it's our loan from God. We are a shomer. We are a, a guard over our bodies, but not necessarily the absolute owner of our bodies. So if somebody comes into your emergency room, and let's say under Jewish principles, if they refuse uh, to have care, and you know it's a life-threatening situation, let's say if you were in Israel and you were running according to a situation you were comfortable enforcing Jewish law, would you be able to force them to take the care? 
in in, in a an ideal situation theoretical right, theocratic theoretical. state right. the answer to that would be yes according to Jewish law it is actually possible to force somebody to take medical therapy assuming that the benefit to the therapy is, is uh, very high and the risks are very low. So if someone comes in and they have a pneumonia and you can give them some antibiotic, and if they refuse the antibiotic, they'll die, then according to Jewish law, in theory, although it's difficult to, to say that it's enforceable in practice, one could indeed force that person to take that antibiotic the, to the preserve their is, life. Right, but the fact is in American law, we see that applied also in certain situations where certain religious groups have refused to give transfusions to children that are life-saving that the American courts have come across and have forced the parents to have their children receive transfusions. That's, that's true. In certain sects, uh, Christian scientists, for example, and other such sects, they don't believe necessarily in the practice of medicine. And this principle that I mentioned, the principle of autonomy, uh, has exceptions. And right. one of those exceptions that you mentioned is children. So if someone who is an adult and refuses that therapy, you, ha you have no legal right uh -huh, to, to force them. But right. if it happens if to be children, a children, gotcha. then that children doesn't necessarily accept the religious beliefs of the parent right. and shouldn't die as a result of refusing that therapy. Now, so that's, that's the caveat to the uh, In to the Jewish medical autonomy. ethics, is autonomy just not there at all, or is it just balanced with the individual rights? How do we autonomy, look at it? Autonomy, there is a notion of autonomy. It doesn't mean that the patient never has a right to make a decision or never has a right to choose therapy. Uh, and indeed, in practice, the patient does have a right to choose therapy when there is a risk-benefit ratio to the therapy, for example, if someone, God forbid, suffers from a cancer. Right. And the doctor offers chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy may cure, it may not cure, and we all know that chemotherapy has very severe adverse effects and can cause people very severe nausea and many other complications. So a person has a right in Jewish law in that particular case to decide whether it's worth it for them to undergo such a therapy or not to undergo such a therapy. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the principle underlying it is not the same principle. In actuality, the patient has the same decision-making capability whether they hold by Jewish law or don't hold by Jewish law. But in Jewish law, it's, uh, I would say, in a sense, it's a de facto uh, decision-making mm -hmm. capability. It not, not, uh, doesn't mean that the individual owns their own body. Interesting. Now let's get to another area, the end-of-life issue, because that's something that many people face during the course of life, obviously, and they might be dealing with it even presently with parents, grandparents. And Judaism, of course, looks at the sanctity of life. One of the other driving forces behind, uh, if you would say, a Torah principle, a biblical principle, is the sanctity of life. How do we deal with that, knowing the balance of what we're dealing with in so many complicated end-of-life issues? The, uh, the climate that we live in in contemporary medicine is uh, you walk into a hospital and uh, the first thing they ask you is, you know, do you want to be resuscitated? Right. Uh, even if you come in, if you have a, a toenail, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's ingrown. Uh, and the thrust of American society is to withhold care, withdraw care, not to be put on life support systems, um, to remove people from life support systems once they're on, off on life support systems. Uh, Jewish law, as you said, which is one of the major principles, we talked about the notion of autonomy, we talked about the license to heal, uh, the sanctity of human life is paramount in Jewish law. And that's in direct conflict um, with, quote-unquote, the quality of life issue. And the notion of quality of life takes on a different notion in, in Jewish law than it does in secular what law. What is the notion? And in, in Jewish law, life is life and has infinite value irrespective of the so-called quality. Very so someone who is right. comatose or someone who is handicapped or someone who is... Uh, uh, in any any uh, any malformation, be it psychological or physical, mm -hmm. as long as that person is physically alive, they have the same equality of life as any other individual on this earth. Now, as an ethicist, how do you explain that to somebody? How can you go to a family and say, "Listen, your your parent, your grandparent is in a comatose situation here. 
but the quality of life is not the issue. The fact is they, they, they're still, God is still breathing the breath of life into this person and giving them that gift, which is life. And this is the paramount thing we should be considering and not necessarily the repercussions which are taking place around the family. Well, the truth is you, you uh, actually address a, a, even a more complex issue, and that's the notion of a physician who's practicing, who believes in a religious faith like uh, Judaism that I do. Should I be advocating my religious right. beliefs to a patient who doesn't necessarily agree with my religious beliefs. Right. So in this society, we generally have a, a, a notion that we don't foist our beliefs right. on, that, on that somebody else. Of course. So, uh, so I, I want to address your question okay. still, okay. But, but I think... I'm talking again under, uh, right, under, under theoretical, but, but right. it's an important thing to realize no, that even though, even though we necessarily, we would believe, for example, in a circumstance that the respirator shouldn't be removed, or that I, uh, that I would put somebody on a respirator for the sake of discussion, it doesn't mean that I would necessarily force somebody living in an American society to do right. that because I happen to hold that belief. Would you ever advise somebody that, as a doctor, I'm advising you this, and on a personalist level, I'm advising you something to go a little bit further? I, I would be more than happy to share my personal beliefs with the patients, okay. and I do so, but, but not necessarily. They make it very clear where it's coming from. Right, absolutely. So that way they have a position. It becomes that complicated can, because, let's sure, say, sure. Jewish law says to do action A. Right and uh, secular society says uh, to do action B. Right. Does that ever create a conflict of interest um, for you personally? It does. It does create a conflict. There are cases, for example, where a family might request of me to remove the patient from the respirator. Right. Uh, and according to Jewish law, if a person is on a respirator which is sustaining their life mm -hmm. on, on the life support machine, uh, removing that machine could, would be a tantamount to homicide. So what do you do in a situation like that? Uh, so we are, again, fortunate to live in a society where I cannot be forced to do such a thing. I can relinquish care or transfer care to someone else who would do such a Interesting. thing. Interesting. And that's what uh, you would do. And not compromise my religious right. beliefs. Okay. And that's, that's, that's what I fair. do. That's what I have done in, uh, in these other circumstances. But in, in the, in the, in the uh, theocratic uh, or theoretical right. world <laughs> of, uh, of Jewish law, um, when Mashiach comes, we'll be practicing when medicine Mashiach according comes, to we'll this way. Practicing medicine according to this way. Okay. Uh, the sanctity of life is uh, is paramount, and uh, and one uh, one has to uh, preserve that life, even if it's a life which the general society doesn't believe that it's quote worth living. Yeah. No, I, I uh, find that uh, that's such a key issue, Ben. It's such a a controversial issue, and such a hard issue for people to understand that. Life is a gift no matter what form it comes in. Even if you have a child, and the child, God forbid, is, uh, is deformed or is sick or has a genetic disease or whatever, that is a precious gift from God. And it's, it's not a coincidence, a mistake. There's a reason, there's a purpose behind it. It's a, obviously, we can get into a whole discussion sure, here of different sure. types of, of ideas of what, what God's relationship is to the individual human being and the purpose God has for each individual human being. But it's, it's a very important concept for people to try to come to grips with and, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I think at a time like 9-11, the, the tremendous, the, I felt an intense feeling amongst people for the sanctity of life. There was just such an intensity that, that you rarely, rarely see how people felt the sanctity of life. And when you get down to the basics, and hopefully people come to grips with these, these situations for better occasions and not for situations right. like that, but we, we get to see how life under any form is just an incredible, incredible gift that we have to appreciate. And but not only life, but even after life is gone, the tremendous sanctity that the, that the Jewish faith places in the human body. 
Yeah. And the fact, I think we learned that from 9-11 also, that they spent countless millions of dollars right. and, and countless thousands of hours right. to give respect to, to, the, to, dead give respect to the dead. Right. Why did they have to do that? They didn't have to do that, to exactly. sift through hundreds of thousands of pieces sure. to identify DNA, to uh, to give them a proper burial. Interesting. Uh, point. It gave us, gave us a wonderful mm. lesson about the sanctity of the human body, even after life was gone. Right. Let's talk about uh, assisted uh, birth, um, surrogate mothers, these types of situations. What, obviously, these were not situations that were discussed in the times of the Talmud Correct. or in the Torah itself. Correct. But what, again, are the principles that we can use in order to be able to, to extrapolate in order to show that these things are perfectly acceptable and encouraged in many cases in a Jewish perspective? The, uh, the world of assisted reproduction has blossomed over the past uh, few decades. It's one of the most fertile fields, if you will. Uh, and, and no, one pun the, <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended. And Jewish law does have a lot to say about it. One of the major, actually the very first mitzvah in the Torah is to be fruitful and multiply. Right. Uh, and, and, and how you understand and interpret that gives us uh, some idea of how to approach the whole field of assisted right. reproduction, assisting people who never would have been able to have children some decades ago. Uh, so, for example... One important uh, basic principle is that one might argue that uh, we have an obligation to be fruitful and multiply, that you should have uh, children. Uh, so maybe if, if one isn't able to have children, does the Torah obligate them to have mm -hmm. children, to use this right. as a method, to undergo artificial insemination, to undergo uh, surrogate motherhood, to undergo cloning even, for example? Right. Uh, so the answer to that question is no, is that uh, the Torah does not obligate you to, to utilize this technology. However... It allows you to use the technology, and that's what the rabbis spend an inordinate amount of time discussing, uh, what some of the issues are in involved. There's a, there's a sanctity not only of human life, there's a, there's a prohibition against wasting the male reproductive seed unnecessarily, uh, and obviously that has to be uh, procured for the purpose of any uh, procedure in assisted reproduction. And, right. and these issues are discussed extensively by the rabbinic authorities. Right, yeah, 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 the public should know. We're only covering these subjects, of course, in a yeah, very, very, very cursory way, right, right. but sure. there are a tremendous amount of books out there that you can pick up on medical ethics. Uh, do you have a couple you suggest? Sure, suggest? I can suggest a couple authors, actually. Uh, some of the authors uh, are uh, Dr. Fred Rosner, has written a number of wonderful books that deal with these issues. Right. Uh, Rabbi uh, J. David Blythe uh, has written books that deal with these right. issues. Those are the two, names, those are the two primary the, authors, yeah. and Rabbi Tendler, Rabbi uh, Moshe Tendler. Right. Now, you uh, mentioned cloning. I want to get back to that, but sure, I, I, still, sure. I also want to ask you another question beforehand. Surrogate mothers, who's yes. the real mother? Ah, who's the mother? To whom do you send a card on Mother's Day? <laughs> That's right. really the question. Um, and can you have two mothers-in-law? Yeah, from a Jewish <laughs> really perspective, that's probably the more crucial <laughs> question. Uh, that remains somewhat unresolved, and it's a, it's a very complex issue because, after all, this is the first time in the history of, uh, of humanity that more than one person is vying for the definition of being a mother. Right. You know, is it just the, uh, is it the person who donates the genes? Is it the person who gives the womb? So um, what, what are the opinions that support each approach? So they're, uh, actually, the whole gamut of opinions is, is espoused, literally from one perspective to the other. For uh, One ra prominent rabbi in Israel maintains that uh, the child has no mother if fertilization takes place outside the womb. Really? Uh, and there's some who claim that both mothers might have a claim on uh, maternity, and consequently both mothers should be uh, defined as a mother. And the truth is it has serious uh, legal ramifications, because sure. according to Jewish law, the uh, the faith of the child is defined by the mother. Right. So let's say you have a case where the genes belong to someone who's Jewish, but the womb belongs to someone who's not. Right. Is that child considered halakhically Jewish or not? Interesting. Uh, does that child have to undergo conversion after the child is born? Right. 
Um, so there, there are a lot of uh, a lot of these kinds of issues which uh, which require clarification. Interesting. Okay. Now, getting back to cloning, a hot topic. Right. So you said that in the very beginning of Genesis, we have the mitzvah, the commandment of being fruitful for, and multiplying. Right. Incidentally, as part of that, also it says that we should rule the earth with kavshuha and to sure, be able to right. conquer it, in the sense of that we are given not only the the permission but the mandate to be able to to control the powers of nature and be able to use nature out to our best possibility in order to be able to develop the, the God-given potential that human beings have. So you might take that to the natural extent and say, well, listen, if we have the God-given ability to be able to clone now, we should be able to clone. But is there a, an area where Judaism will stop in terms of saying, wait a second, we're taking this a little bit too far as far as reproduction is concerned? Well, the an analysis for that would follow in a twofold fashion. First of all, is there any specific prohibition against doing such a thing? Uh, does the Torah forbid cloning? Is there anything in the Torah that says, thou shalt not clone? Is there any reason why any aspect of cloning would be technically forbidden? Uh, and that would be analysis number one. And the answer to that is probably no. Well, you could say that man is created in the image of God, and therefore there's a, a specific way that man should be created by God. Uh, that's that's true. That's true. But that's uh, that's not. Uh, it's not law. Right. It's not law. It's, okay, fine. Uh, it's it's metaphysical or supra legal, if you will. Okay. Uh, and that has a major impact in the terms of, in terms of the application of the law. So while you could argue that the process of cloning probably violates no specific law, it doesn't mean that cloning should be done. Right. Uh, there are other overarching issues which might uh, preclude the use of cloning. For example, Maybe medically. Maybe we should appeal to God for a new law. <laughs> That's true. How does that appeals process work, by the way? <laughs> I'll tell you after the show. <laughs> I'll tell you after the show. Um, but in terms of, uh, in terms of cloning, uh, first of all, the cloning procedure medically is a very dangerous procedure. It sure. can be very harmful to the child. We saw sure. the sheep, Dolly, uh, had a premature death, uh, developed right. arthritis much earlier than anybody else uh, at, at her uh, chronological age would have. Right. Uh, so it's quite possible that, uh, and there's no... Uh, no uh, License, you know, you have a license to heal. You don't necessarily have a license, and this gets back to one of our other principles we addressed. Cloning might not necessarily fall within the rubric of a license to heal. Um, you're not necessarily healing any particular individual with the use of cloning. Uh, also, there is debate about the uh, progeny of cloning. To whom does that progeny relate to? Uh, who is the mother or father? Let's say a right. woman clones herself. Who is the legal father of such a child? Right. Um, so creating a population of people that have ambiguous lineage, uh, you know, when they, it's time for them to get married, you know, how do you sign so the uh, lineage is a very important you know, issue. Lineage, lineage is an extremely important <coughs> issue. Right. But I will tell you a fascinating application, medical application of cloning, which gets us to another issue of stem cell research. Right, which is the next issue I wanted to go um, into. And that is, uh, imagine the following scenario. You have an individual who, needs, uh, who suffers from severe heart disease, and they need a heart transplant. Um, right now, fortunately, we have the, the luxury of being able to perform heart transplants, mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and that's one option. That has its own attendant uh, halachic issues. Uh, but when you get a heart transplant, you need to take medication for the rest of your life right. to prevent you from rejecting that heart. Right. So imagine the following uh, scenario. Um, you could take an individual cell, clone, clone them. So you have a man who needs a heart transplant. You isolate a cell from that individual, uh, you'd have to take the DNA from that cell, put it into an egg, right. the shell of an egg of a woman, okay. and you uh, stimulate it to, to, uh, to reproduce in the laboratory. Then at a certain stage of development, you, you don't wait till it implant it into another human being and, and produce a full human clone. At a, in the laboratory, at a certain stage of development, you take out a few cells, 
called stem cells, and you can guide those cells to develop into a certain part of the body. So, for example, you can guide those cells to develop into heart cells. Interesting. And actually, in Israel, they've done research taking stem cells, and they've gotten the stem cells to form heart cells that actually pump in the really? laboratory. So that's how far they've, they've come with that, and this is very, very early stages. So in theory, you could produce heart muscle, or even for the sake of discussion, uh, this, is our, this is science fiction, but produce a full heart from a stem cell and transplant that heart back into that individual. Right. And when that individual receives that heart, that's not a foreign substance for them. Right. Their body will not reject it because it's, it derives from that right. individual's so own tissue. Right, so they won't require drugs. won't require any anti-rejection drugs. So that's a, a theoretical application of, the, uh, of both cloning technology and stem cells. And for us now, that might be science fiction, but who knows in who 30, knows, 40 right. years whether so it's going to be. When the rabbi's still giving your uh, shows in 30, 40 years from now, <laughs> maybe uh, we'll discuss this topic uh, in reality. I think that is a blessing for a long <laughs> life. <laughs> but stem cell research, from a halakhic Jewish legal perspective, is not a problem the way other religious groups have found it to be a problem. Correct, correct. Which is very interesting. I think uh, people find that very fascinating that it's not a problem for us. Uh, and the reason it's not a problem relates to, uh, to with the way we view the pre-embryo or pre-implantation embryo, uh, which is one of, the, one of the sources of stem cells. There are other sources of stem cells. They can come from an adult. They can come from, uh, from other sources. But the prime source are from fertilized eggs that okay. are sitting in a laboratory. So the crux of the issue in terms of stem cell research is how does Jewish law view the status of these few cells that are sitting in a laboratory. And uh, to illustrate that, let me, let me ask you the following question. Um, and this is a real-life case which happened in Tel Aviv about uh, a month ago. Okay. Although it didn't happen as I'm, I'm describing it. I'm changing the variables Fine. a little. But let's say it's, it happens to be the Sabbath. happens to be Shabbos. Right. And, uh, and the laboratory has a mechanism that's run by electricity which preserves 300 uh, frozen embryos. Right. And all of a sudden, the electricity goes off. Can we violate the Sabbath in order to save or preserve those pre-embryos? What's the answer? So the short answer is no. Now, but to get because to that conclusion, really life. because we don't view it while we give it a certain amount of respect, clearly it's not the same as hair cells that have sloughed off the body or something right. like that. <coughs> but at the same time, we don't grant it the status of human life. Um, and the truth is that we don't grant the full status of human life to an embryo in utero either. A fetus in the woman's womb doesn't have a status of right. human life. Uh, and if the woman's life is at stake and the, and the fetus is still within the womb, the, the Mishnah actually says explicitly that you can dismember the fetus limb by limb. Right. In order to remove the... Uh, if it's threatening the life of the woman. If it's woman. threatening the life of the woman. Right. Uh, and the question is, can you violate the Sabbath to preserve the life of a fetus? So the answer to that is Yes. And the reason the answer to that is yes is because even though the fetus may not have actual status of life in Jewish law, it has potential for life. Right. Uh, so what about the, the fetus in utero? I mean, the pre-embryo. The pre-embryo doesn't even have potential in that sense because if you leave it in the laboratory, it'll decompose. So Very that's why it has that, uh, that right. unique status. Fascinating. Well, Dr. Reichman, it's been a pleasure, and I wish you tremendous success in your work. And I hope that the association continues to expand the, the body of knowledge that is ne so necessary for people to have a greater idea of what these medical ethics issues are so people can, on an individual basis can make better decisions for themselves and for their families.
God should give you strength to continue your important work. Thank you very much, Ritzel. It's been an absolute pleasure. Good. I hope we'll have you back on again. Thank you. In the meantime, for everybody out there, I hope you'll do something, make your your world a little bit better. Go out there, do a little reading, find out about the intricacies of Jerusalem, the beauty of the thought process that goes into it. And remember that one point that the doctor made about the sanctity of life. Every single day, remember that gift of life that we have and enjoy it to its fullest and do mitzvahs as much as you can. Take care. We'll see you next week. Same time, same station. Shalom.